I am the night sky. I rise from the east. I burn a bright blue, breathing with ease. I flame with such grace. Everything I do is planned. I am that I am. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the More Podcast. Today, we have Sultan Skinny joining us today. We're super excited to have him. He has his own podcast, and he's going to be telling us a little bit about what his podcast is about, what he represents, and everything of that sort. So welcome, Sultan Skinny. Uh, thank you, Ms. Moore, for having me. Uh, welcome, y'all. It's your boy, Sultan Skinny, the lord of all that is lean and politically unclean. I have a YouTube channel where it is dedicated to discussing the history and politics of the Middle East, uh, what it is and why it's important, and all of the cool things that they don't usually teach you in the classroom. But right. thank you for having me. Absolutely. We're so excited to have you. And so we know that your focus is on the Middle East, but I know your specific focus is on the Middle East and North Africa. Could you tell us about the connection of the Middle East and North Africa a bit? Um, sure. So what we call the Middle East um, is a very arbitrary term. If you were to look up the Middle East on Google Images and look up for a Middle East map, you're going to find multiple different interpretations of what the Middle East is. It'll sometimes include North Africa. Sometimes it will not. Sometimes it'll include Afghanistan or even Pakistan. And sometimes it will include Egypt and not include Egypt. Yeah. So the Middle East is a is as arbitrary as it comes when it comes to geography and uh, shaping uh, human space, yeah. essentially, because it doesn't really exist. Um what we call the Middle East, the reason it's called the Middle East is because the British, it was on, it was in the middle of getting to the East in terms of India and China. Okay. Wow. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. That's why we call it the Middle East. It's in the middle of getting to the East. Okay. And that, is that why they also sometimes include it with North Africa? Because over time it was a little bit separated from North Africa with the tectonic plates or like, why is it included so in Africa at all? North Africa is included in the Middle East context for political reasons. Um, North Africa, like the majority of the Middle East, is Muslim and Arabic-speaking. Um, Middle East also has a cultural connotation to it. Um, when you say Middle East, the first thing you think of are Muslims and Arabs because they are the most predominant culture and thus they wanted to include North Africa into that. They even include Afghanistan and Pakistan for that same reason. Um, but of course, that's just not true. Um, the Middle East is a very diverse place. Um, Arabs are the dominant linguistic group, but to include like North Africa as part of the Middle East is even controversial in my, in my field and what like I'm studying and in what I tackle. Um, but in the proper like Middle Eastern Arab terms, um, there's two, uh, distinct areas that make up the quote-unquote Middle East and North Africa, what we call the Mashriq, which means East, which mm -hmm. includes Egypt, 
um, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Iran, Turkey, those countries. And then you have the Maghreb, which is called, which is the West. Right. And that is Libya, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, Mauritania. Okay. And so that, that's how the Arabs distinguished their world because they considered themselves at one point the center of the world. Okay. And they were, they distinguished their world in this way, like historically. Okay. Yes. Okay. So let's go back a little bit. Um, where, where are you from? Like, who are you? What's your ethnicity? And what perspective are you studying this information regarding North Africa and Middle East? Um, so I was born and raised in Canada. Um, and my ethnic background was Lebanese and Venezuelan. Um, so there was always a bit of a feeling that, you know, I didn't really belong to either side. Like I'm always in a position where I'm never really Canadian enough, mm. never really Lebanese enough, and I'm never really Venezuelan enough. Um, so I feel like my perspective when it comes to like approaching, um, sp specifically topics of like, um, nationalism, identity, politics, history is fairly unique because even though culturally and ethnically I grew up with like Lebanese customs, I still consider myself mostly Canadian. Um, so I, I it gives me a bit of a, uh, a, I think like a bit of an, like a, like a little bit of an edge when it comes to like approaching this topic. Mm -hmm. Um, and really, the reason I focused mostly on the Middle East was because um, while obviously I lived in Canada, I was raised in Canada, um, I was always more in tune with my Venezuelan side than my Lebanese side. Um, I didn't know much about Lebanon. Uh, right. So I had to, I wanted to go research more about the Middle East so I could like research a little bit more about Lebanon, what it meant to be Lebanese, who like half my family even is, like as a culture. Because even they, to a certain extent, don't really um, associate themselves so much with their Lebanese heritage. Because Lebanese people, especially Christian ones, like to integrate into their society mm. wherever they live. So if you were to ask my cousins, they would tell you they're first Canadian, first and foremost. Right. And then Lebanese. Right. Which is not usually the case in, in many, like, second generation uh, Canadian and American homes, right? Like, you'll have, like, people, like, who are... Like in like Toronto, like you'll have Venezuelans who are not born in Venezuela, but they'll pretend like they're more Venezuelan than like actual Venezuelans. Right. You know? Okay. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think that's, that's who I am okay. essentially. Okay. So would you say that you take more of like a Orientalist approach or is there like an identity crisis that you kind of like struggle with when doing this type of research? I never really had an identity crisis. Like, it sounds like I would because I'm, like, intersectionally, like, really messed up in that regard. Like, not messed very, up. It's kind of, like, 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 there's not a lot of people, like, with that kind of mix and, like, background. And, you know, it does feel like 
you know, whatever, whichever circle I'm in, like, I'll never really have a tribe. But honestly, like, I... Or you can belong to all the tribes. Yeah, I, or I could just not have a tribe. I could just be myself and be content with myself. Mm-hmm. I never really had, like, that much of an identity crisis because my family would always kind of, like, scoff at the idea, like, oh, where do I belong? They're like, who cares, man? Like, just, like, be you. Nobody cares about where you belong. We're just, like, survive in this world, okay? Like... There's more important things to life than, right. you know, finding out who you are as a person. Like, uh, like they, they, they never really stress too much importance on, you know, who you are as an individual, but like more on what you make yourself to be. So I never really had like too much of like an identity crisis. I was always very comfortable with who I was, um, as an individual. I actually think it like, it gives me a bit more perspective when you have like these so many cultural influences in your life. Um, but in terms of like researching the Middle East, talking about the Middle East, I would consider myself to be an Orientalist. I what am, does that mean? What is what is an Orientalist? Because it does have negative connotations. It does have negative connotations because it was used mostly to perpetuate negative stereotypes and negative attributes to the people of the Orient, people of the East, and specifically Muslims and Arabs. But um, ultimately, an Orientalist is someone from the West who is engaging in the study of people from the East. Um, and this is a very important field of research, not only about understanding the people of the East, but also about understanding the people of the West themselves, right? Like so much of what we call Western civilization is really just a reaction to Eastern civilization, um, there is no Western civilization without Eastern civilization. Right. And Western civilization um, values itself based on the differences it can pinpoint from Eastern civilization. Um, and really, like, the, the study and the focus and the um, fixation on the culture and customs of the people of the East is what really makes Western civilization so unique in the eyes of Western people. Um so it's it's a, it's a yeah it has a negative connotation but it's a natural phenomena right like right. if if someone from the east was going to study uh people in the west we'd call them occidentalists and there are in history though not as many as orientalists there have been occidentalists who have wrote things about um people in western europe and it's funny because it's you know you look at things that we do in the west that we consider normal like sitting on chairs but to people in the East, that's weird. Eating with a fork, it's like, what do you mean you're eating with a fork? Eat with your hands. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> okay, so I know you, in the beginning, you talked about, like, we don't get to learn about the Middle East in schools a lot. And it's it's really true. Um, if you could give a short visual to my audience about Middle Eastern stories or the, the history, like, what would you, what, what would you say? In short, in in short, oh man, in medium length. I don't <laughs> you know. can't, I don't, you can't have it in short because, like, what I, what I say is that the reason I fixate so much on the Middle East in particular, and why, like, out of all of like the regions in the world, I focus mainly on the Middle East, is because I sincerely believe, and I will defend it like till the enemy, that the Middle East, geographically and historically speaking, is the most important place to learn about human history. Um, human history, in terms of written history in terms of civilization, started in what we call the Middle East. Writing started in what we call the Middle East. 
religion, societies, cities, the first urban areas all started in the Middle East. Um, 60% of the world's population follows a faith in which the individuals, the writing, the languages, the uh, places of worship, and the um, birthplace of humanity according to their deity and the end of the day of judgment will all occur in that one specific place in the Middle East. Um, it literally. But when you're saying the Middle East, you are, we already talked about how the Middle East is arbitrary. It's like, what are we talking about? Are we including Egypt in that? Because we do know that ancient Kemet was like a, a pivotal center of civilization. Is that is, is absolutely. included? Egypt, Egypt okay. is absolutely included in the Middle East. Again, that's the beautiful thing about the Middle East. Like, you can literally include any country you want <laughs> no, in that general vicinity. Okay. That, right? Like, sometimes Sudan is even considered part of the Middle East. Really? Yeah, because wow. it's an Arab Muslim country. Um, so it, again, like it's such an arbitrary term, which makes it really, you know, difficult to conceptualize, but at the same time, super fun and flexible to work with. Right. Um, because when Egypt is included, yeah, that is a very important area. If you want to be even like more radical, you can add Ethiopia and That's Somalia, thinking, yeah. right? If you That's want to crazy. include the Middle East as the place surrounding the Persian Gulf, the Caspian Sea, the Black Sea, the, um, Red Seas, those areas. Yeah. You could, if really, if you wanted to, I don't see why not. Um, it's such an arbitrary term to eventually, to the point where eventually like the whole world revolves around the Middle East, right? right? Like in terms of history, in terms of culture, in terms of politics, even modern day politics. Um, the backbone of modern economics revolves around the Middle East. It has the largest reserves of oil, which is the largest commodity in the world. It literally makes our modern world run. Um, the Suez Canal and the, um, the um, Strait of Hormuz are some of the most important trading checkpoints, right? A boat got stuck in the Suez Canal mm-hmm. and billions upon billions of dollars were just lost like in an instant because of that minor inconvenience, right? So when, when you are able to affect the global human world system, to that degree, I think it's the most... Uh, the way I would describe it is, imagine a, like, you know how there's the galaxy and it all spins? Right. Right? The Middle East is the sun. The sun? Yeah, and everything revolves around it in terms of human history. Interesting. Um, it's an interesting analysis. Middle Eastern-centric, if you will. Right. So, do you, do you think that including North Africa in the Middle East is, like, a tool to maybe de-Africanize Northern African countries? Absolutely. Um, Both in, especially in the terms of the French literature, um, because French literature really um, industrialized like the, the, the academic um, perception of the Maghreb. And they usually, they, they, they used to call it white Africa. They associated it as being white Africa. In fact, French scholars used to call the Berbers, um, who are an indigenous group in Africa. They're mm-hmm. Africans, one of the oldest ethnic groups in Africa, one of the oldest cultures in Africa. They used to associate them and try to classify them as being European, as being Caucasian, um, not only as a way to... Um, bring them closer together in relation to Europe but and bring North Africa closer in relation to Europe, 
but also politically to divide them amongst the Arab speakers,、mm. right? Oh, the Berbers are more European, so you should fight with us. How would the Amazigh people be more European? That's that's because they're fair skin, usually. No, not all the time. Not all the time, but you know, you you you've seen it in Morocco. There is a huge spectrum when it yeah, comes to huge,、yeah. colors. In、um, this, the more southern you get in Morocco, the darker Berbers you find. Yeah, and the more north you go, the lighter they get. Yeah, right. Right. So it's it's very and it's very mixed. There's also a lot of mixed people. There's a lot of Moroccans here who, in the United States and in Canada, we would consider black. Right, but they wouldn't call themselves black because the racial binaries that the Europeans constructed to Africa and the Middle East those don't really exist. Yeah, black doesn't exist. It's not a thing. There's no black land, no black culture, no black language. It's not a thing. Yeah, like that isn't to say that there isn't colorism and that there isn't racism in North Africa and the Middle East because there definitely is,、um, but. The perspective of like all black pe all sub-Saharan black people as being like the same and like homogenous that didn't exist. Yeah, In fact,、not. Arabs were very、um, they categorized sub-Saharan Africans regionally,、um, and they they were very aware of the differences、mm. of、uh, people in. In fact, they called it all Sudan the Arabs. The word Sudan is actually the Arabic word for essentially sub-Saharan. Oh, say that again. You said the Arab is in Arabic.、Okay. Sudan is actually the word for Sub-Saharan Africa. Really? Yeah, they、mm. called all Arabs. Oh, they called all Sub-Saharan Africans Sudanese. They were all Sudanese. I have not come across this information. That is really interesting. Yeah, and they called all Western Europeans, like English, Germans,、uh, French people. They all called them Franks. They were all Franks. Mm, okay. Wow. So, what has been your most fascinating discovery as it relates to the Middle East? Like that, I found out. Like, hmm. Ah,、oh, man, it's all interesting. It's all like phenomenal.、Um, one one thing. The the biggest discovery, like for me at least, was the. Richness and vastness of scientific, philosophical, and academic literature published by Muslims, Arabs, Persians that、um, are like so important to like how we study the world, how、mm-hmm. we observe the world, to science and all that. A lot of those discoveries. They wrote hundreds of years before the Europeans that we usually give credit for making those discoveries. They they wrote them hundreds of years before they were even born. Right, like a, a person we talked about before was Ibn Ibn Sina, correct? Yeah, Ibn Sina.、Um, in the, and the, the interesting thing is is that Europeans studied people like Ibn Sina. They called they actually Latinized their names. So in the West they called them Avicenna,、um, and they they would. Uh, call Ibn Rushd Averroes and Ibn Al Haytham Al Hazen.、Um, they they European Renaissance and Enlightenment thinkers read and studied these scholars in their university. Their entire university curriculum、um, revolved around 
their research, their philosophies, um, their perspectives and, con- and um, commentaries on the Greek philosophers, their mathematics, their chemistry, their medicine. Um, a lot of these things that we give credit to European scholars were invented uh, prior Right. By 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 Muslim scholars. Okay, let's let's focus on one Muslim scholar, Ibn Sina. Who what was Ibn Sina coined as learning and and, and spreading information about? So Ibn Sina, um, he is the father of modern medicine. Um, he is a Persian guy. He studied in the city of Bukhara, which is in Uzbekistan, and it was a learning center at the time. And he is famous mostly for having written the Canon of Medicine, which was a book that standardized the practice of like medical practice for over 600 years. So for over 600 years, people were using this guy's book to study medicine. It was not until like the 18th century that universities decided to update his book. Wow. Uh, so imagine in university you're studying uh, a book unchanged for 600 years in terms of medicine. And the reason it was unchanged is because most of the things he wrote about was accurate. And that's the crazy thing about Muslim scholars is that most of the things they wrote about are still true to this day. Because they were the first to actually test out whether or not what they were talking about made sense. Um, which was something that the Greeks did not do. The Greeks never really tested out their theories mm-hmm. in regards to biology, in regards to optics, in regards to chemistry, in regards to everything. They just kind of used deductive reasoning and assumed that because they already had a conclusion, they could make observations about the world and the natural world based on their uh, philosophical perception and conclusions that they came up with um, through their own like philosophy, <laughs> right, right. right? They were lazy. <laughs> they, 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 they half-assed everything. And it was the Muslims who were like, okay, we have these Greek writings. Let's actually test out what they're talking about. And a lot of what the Greeks wrote, like Aristotle, Galen, Plato, they were wrong. Okay. This is, this is a really fascinating. So who do you think that the, um, Muslim scholars were influenced by? So, when the Muslims first came out of Arabia, the Arabs um, and, and the Muslims, the first Muslims, were exceptionally illiterate and super ignorant about the world. Um, they conquered the Romans and the Persians, who were the epitome of civilization at the time. And What time frame are we talking right now? We're talking the 600s. AD. Really? 600s AD. And you had these two massive empires, the Romans, the Byzantine Romans, and the Sasanian Persians. Mm. These were the largest uh, and most sophisticated empires of their day. And these two empires constantly clashed with one another, fought over the entirety of the Middle East. And they were also very repressive and their population was getting kind of sick of them. There were even like plagues happening. And then when the Arabs from the desert of the Arabian Peninsula came up, they already were approaching a weakening, declining um, Roman and Persian Empire. Uh, so they swept and 
conquered them very easily. But the Arabs realized that they were new to this game of empire building. So they had to adopt and they were also the minority of the population, right? Like the Arabs are from the desert that you don't really grow a big population from a nomadic people. These were like urban societies, the Persians and Romans. So they had to use Christians. They had to use Jews. They had to use Greeks. They had to use Persians to administer their empire and to actually build a society. Um, a lot of is practices that we associate and, and, and schools of thought that we associated with Islam were developed later as a result of these um, different cultures making consensus with one another mm. to live in one large community and society. And so a lot of the inspiration in terms of their science and philosophy came from the Greeks, uh, as well as the Persians. The Persians are kind of left out a lot. And I, but the Greeks studied in Africa a lot of times. They yes. did have the, indig like the indigenous Greeks, but a lot of times they would be traveling to Africa to gather information and then go back. Absolutely. The Greeks conquered um, Egypt. Right. Right. And they had a whole Ptolemaic dynasty for hundreds of years. And the Eastern Roman Empire uh, was often called the Greek Empire uh, by the Western uh, half of the Roman world, the Roman realm. Um, the Byzantines were mostly Greek speaking. And most their breadbasket and largest population center was essentially Egypt. Um, so yeah, so the Greeks were still very prevalent in Egypt by the time the Muslims got there. It was still a, a very much Hellenized, Latinized world, um, all of North Africa. In fact, North Africa in general actually produced um, some of the greatest intellectuals in in Europe. Um, mm -hmm. Saint Augustus, um, or no, sorry, not Saint Augustus, Saint Augustine who was one of the most important Christian philosophers, one of the key like cornerstones of like Western philosophy and Western Christian thought. He's from North Africa, mm -hmm. but we don't talk about him like he's from North Africa. We talk about him like he's from Europe. Um, and um, even like Christianity, people forget that it developed, even though it's associated with Western Europe, it developed the first Churches were in Jerusalem, Alexandria in Egypt, Antioch in Syria, and then later Rome. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and I really like the concept of the floating man. Could you explain that to our audience and who coined that theory? So the floating man, you really liked Ibn Sina, eh? Yes. Yeah, he made an impact on you. <laughs> um, so Ibn Sina, as well as being the father of medicine was also one of the greatest philosophers to ever uh, exist. Um, the floating man is an experimental uh, thought practice that is essentially asking the question, if a man was falling in the sky, had nothing physically to bind him to the earth, how would he know that he even exists? Um, essentially what Ibn Sina was writing about and was conceptualizing is the now famous um, Descartes uh, slogan of I think, therefore I am. But we associate this rationale with Descartes. But here we have Ibn Sina who wrote it centuries before Descartes was even born. And the reason Descartes even came up to this conclusion was because he most likely read Ibn Sina. Uh, just like most of your favorite Enlightenment uh, philosophers like John Locke, 
even your famous Renaissance thinkers like Galileo, uh, Thomas Aquinas, they mostly cited and were inspired by Islamic scholars, philosophers who came before them. Um, but of course, there is an active, um, there's an active uh, campaign to kind of erase that history. And that's another reason why I also focus on Middle Eastern history is because the reason we're not taught a lot about it is entirely political. It's not like this stuff doesn't exist. It's not like you can't find books about this. Um, it's very common knowledge to most, you know, serious scholars. But our media and our education system has been very active in trying to suppress this history. Right. And it sounds like our, a lot of the Western education system is like based off perjury. Yeah. Well, like, look, well, remember like how they taught you history in elementary school? Like, it's like, yeah, so you have the Greeks, you know, who came up with democracy and came up with philosophy. And then you have the Romans and they were a super big, strong empire. And after Rome fell, that was it. There was a dark age. There was no learning. Everything was terrible until the Renaissance. So you have this dark period uh, for over like a thousand years mm. before and of just nothing, no achievements, no advancements. Everything was just garbage. Well, in reality, while it was garbage for not even Europe, like Northwestern Europe, because even Europe was still kicking it. Spain was doing very well. Greece was still doing well. Um, but the rest of the world was thriving uh, relatively, uh, especially uh, Africa, North Africa uh, in particular, and even East Africa and the Middle East and China and India, even the Americas. Um, but because we live in a world where, um, especially in the Anglosphere, because England wasn't doing well, well, therefore the world wasn't doing well. Right. But that's nonsense. Mm. Um, and this is what one of the biggest lies that you're taught in history in school. And this actually affects how we perceive the world. Because if everything that was ever good is revolved around Europe, what does that mean for the rest of the people who inhabit this world? What, they don't have a history? They don't have any contributions? How are you going to view those people then? How are you going to treat those people? Right. Right? History and how we tell it is exceptionally important for how we navigate the world and the different people who live in it. Um, so to just exclude uh, these things, right? Like you should know, you should be taught who Ibn Sina is. This is the guy who invented medicine. This is a guy who um, philosophically you know, proved the existence of the soul, right? Like this, like, like this is one of the most important figures in the world and, and not just him, but Ibn Khaldun, who created the social sciences as we know it today. Uh, Ibn Al-Haytham, who was the first scientist, the first person to conduct the scientific method. Al-Razi, who was one of the greatest and Ibn Hayyan, who was the father of, of chemistry. Chemistry literally comes from the Arabic word alchemia, meaning alchemy. Like, we should know who these figures are, and we're just not taught them. Right. Um, so I want to, like, jump a little bit and talk a little bit about um, Islam and Muslim religion. Could you explain the difference between Sunni and Shia? Because I know a lot of people may not understand the context of 
Sunni and Shia as it pertains to Islam? So, Islam, as well as being a religion, a spiritual practice, is also a political ideology. Um, the Prophet Muhammad was uh, more than just a prophet like Jesus or Moses who spoke to God and brought divine revelation. He was first and foremost a lawgiver. He established a, uh, a nation of law and order and justice in a land that never really had that before. So he is really more of a political revolutionary, at least in my mind, mm. than he is like a prophet in the traditional sense. Um, and um, that's another thing, true, right? We don't learn about Prophet Muhammad in school. It's kind of like walk, we walk around eggshells yeah. with it, right? We don't <laughs> at all. We don't. But he's one of, and I and I argue even in my YouTube channel, he's the greatest historical figure of all time. Nobody shaped the world like he did, mm. um, in, like like as an individual. Um, and I'm approaching this through a secular perspective. Um, but anyway, after he died, uh, by the time he died, he had already. Um, established a ruling in Arabia that had not existed. He united most of the tribes in Arabia into a Muslim community. And that Muslim community had rules to be governed by in which the Quran is seen as a constitution that was literally written by God. But it took time. Like at first people weren't believing him and you know, they kind of shunned him away from society for a bit. So what, what kind of created people to like believe what he was saying and for those tribes to come together finally all right that's actually really good well so we can talk about it so you gotta you gotta like appreciate the world that muhammad grew up in he grew up in arabia um again there's you have these massive empires that surround arabia you have persia in the persian gulf massive imperial power the roman empire egypt uh syria they occupied and even down in yemen you had a kingdom, a Jewish kingdom called the Himyarites, and even Ethiopia was a big, powerful empire at that time. This was the civilized world. And they all surrounded this barren desert that they all had to cross in order to get to one another for trade in the Arabian Peninsula. But this was run by mostly tribal pirates, um, nomadic Bedouins, uh, who were very simple people because they lived in a very simple land in which if you don't have food or water, you die. And if you have more than me, I'm going to go and try to kill you for it. So there was kind of, it was pretty lawless. And these Arab peoples, they never associated themselves as being part of one nation. The Romans and the Persians would call them Arabs. And as in like, they came from Arabia. But the Arabs themselves, they never really had like an association and identity with it. Um, they just saw themselves as members of their own tribe and their own patriarchal lineage. So enter Muhammad, who is this merchant. Um, who was uh, trained by, first of all, he was trained by his wife, his first wife, uh, who was older than him, to be a merchant. Um, he's a little bit more intellectual than the other Arabs around, the, uh, around his area. And he grew up and he mostly centered his uh, commerce and his life around a city called Mecca. Now in Mecca, there is this cube. There's a, it's called the Kaaba, this cube. It's a black cube. Um, which inside is a black stone and that black stone there's no other stone that looks like it in the desert to the arabs this was a sign of god's divinity regardless of your religion you were jewish zoroastrian pagan jewish whatever 
um, you could come visit Mecca and pray to the stone, worship your deity, worship your idol, because regardless of what God you believed in, this was evidence that he existed or she existed. Um, and Mecca was, there was always a safe haven, right? Because it's a holy place. And it was occupied by a tribe called the Quraysh, of which Muhammad was a part of. And they made money off people making tribute to this city, paying visits and providing gifts for the city because it was a holy city, regardless of your religion. And then Muhammad gets his revelation. There is no God but God. There's only one God. And you are the next prophet. And it's a revelation he doesn't believe in at first. It's his wife, Khadija, who actually believes him. Believes in his revelation before he believed in himself. Mm. She's the first Muslim. Uh, she's of uh, instrumental importance. Because had she said, because she's not just his wife, she was his mentor. She was older than him. She had a tremendous amount of influence in his life. Had she said no, there would be no Islam. Mm. Wow. Right, if you think about that. Um, so it started really with his family. His uncle also believed in him. And the big message, it's not that people didn't believe in him because they believed in God. The real problem was political. He was telling the people in Mecca that they should not worship idols. And you'll notice this, in Islam, there's no, there's no pictures of God. It's a blasphemy. There's no pictures of Muhammad. Muhammad's a man. You shouldn't worship Muhammad. Um, idol. That's why they're so sensitive about his depiction. Yeah. It's not so much even about like insulting him. You do not worship icons. In fact, it's the first two commandments of uh, the Old Testament, right? Thou shalt not worship no god but God, and thou shalt not worship any idols, right? Yeah. But Christians didn't get the memo. Um, <laughs> and we can talk about that later. Anyway. Um, Muhammad, but to the Quraysh who were making a profit off of this, they were telling Muhammad, like, you're, you're, you're messing up our business. Our entire economy revolves around these people worshiping their idol. Mm -hmm. Right? So if you don't stop, you know, your call mm -hmm. to action, we're going to have to kill you. Um, but for Muhammad and for the Muslims, when you worship a different idol, you are dividing the people on what your God looks like, on what idol you worship. Exactly. Right? right? So while it's calm in the city center where everyone is like being essentially scammed for their idol, outside, everyone's fighting over their religion, over their tribe. Mm. The people are not united. If we all follow one God, we will be one people. Mm. That was the message that Muhammad tried to uh, perpetuate. But for the Quraysh, this was about money, livelihood. So they banished him. And then he goes north to a city called Yathrib. And the people in the city needed to his help as a lawgiver to establish order. And he came in and he wrote, not wrote, but he preached a constitution. And this constitution would uh, establish peace within the different tribes of the city, both Jewish and non-Jewish, because it was a big Jewish center. Um, and this is where the first mosque would be built. This is where really the Islamic community would start to uh, formulate itself. But again, it was threatening the authority in Mecca. Right. And so they had a war. Muhammad won that war, came into Mecca, and without any bloodshed, he destroys all of the idols. He doesn't kill the people. He destroys the idols. Mm. 
We're no longer worshiping idols. We're worshiping, we'll, we'll, we'll pray towards the direction of the cube, but we're worshiping one God who has no image. And then he would eventually wow. proselytize his religion around the entirety of the Arabian Peninsula. And for the Arabian Peninsula, this was a huge movement, right? Because they were beginning to see themselves as one people. He was preaching a set of rules and regulations and laws that brought justice uh, to the land. And it was in Arabic. Uh, this is a big deal for the Arab people as well, because there wasn't really a united Arabic back then. But now everyone, if you want to practice this new spiritual enlightenment, this new political establishment, you have to speak, write, and read in Arabic, because we're not going to uh, taint the religion with translations. Right? That's one of the cornerstones of Arab civilization is Islam. But then he dies. And he dies and he has left this empire for his uh, followers to inherit. And so where the division comes is, what would the Prophet Muhammad like to have see his his community um, live by, essentially? How who Who's to lead the community that would abide by um, what the Prophet Muhammad would have liked to see in the foreseeable future? The Sunnis... Um, believed that the companions of Muhammad agreed kind of like in a democratic matter in, in, um, in a, in a house to vote on Abu Bakr, his best friend and his father-in-law to become the caliph, which means successor. The Shias believed that Abu Bakr and the two other caliphs that came after him, Umar and Uthman, are uh, usurps. They impose themselves to be leaders of the Islamic community, when really the Prophet Muhammad would have wanted a male figure from his family to be the next successor, which would have been his nephew Ali. And um, Ali would eventually become caliph, but he would be assassinated. And after his assassination, the uh, Islamic Empire would fall into a civil war. Mm. And this is really where the Shias start to get persecuted and go into hiding. Sunniism becomes the dominant religion uh, uh, sect of Islam to the point where they can... Abu Bakr? No, Abu Bakr was long dead after this. After Abu Bakr, there was a guy named Umar. He really led the big campaigns that conquered Persia and Rome. And then there was another caliph, not as popular, named Uthman. What he's very famous for is canonizing the Quran and making the Quran the standard Quran that we know of it today. Because other um, Arab tribes were trying to come up with their own Quran. And he made it uh, important that it was standardized to the original um, way Muhammad intended it for to be so he burnt all the other Qurans and standardized it um, and then after Uthman came Ali but um, Ali had competition from one of Uthman's cousins named Muawiyah and they had a civil war and in that civil war Ali was winning militarily but despite him winning Ali because he was smart wanted to heal the wounds of the empire so he extended the olive branch to Muawiyah, even though he was winning. Mm. Because he wanted the empire to be won. He wanted to stop the fighting. Members of his army didn't believe that Ali had the right 
to determine who a victor was in a war based on arbitration, based on negotiation. They're winning the battle. God has destined us to win the battle, to slaughter our enemies. Why are we stopping? You are defying the will of God, Ali. Mm. And for that, we're going to kill you. So Ali was assassinated by his own soldiers. Wow. And those soldiers were called the Khawarish. And the Khawarish differentiate themselves from both Sunni and Shiaism in the sense that they don't believe that there should be a Muslim figure to lead the entirety of the Muslim community. You don't have to be descendant of the Prophet. Each Muslim community should have its own leader. And it is the responsibility of those leaders, of, of those of the followers of um, the Khawarijam to overthrow their leaders if they are unjust and impious. The Khawarij would eventually evolve into a branch of Islam called Ibadism, um, which is still practiced predominantly in Oman, the only country that has a majority Ibadi population. And that is the third sect of Islam that nobody talks about. But that is essentially the difference. There's all the differences, like in terms of like how they approach their legal system and how they view like divinity and, 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 uh, this history of the prophet. But really the bulk of it was, um, who has the right to succeed and lead the Muslim empire. Oh, Allah, this is a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's because like people try to simplify, like, you can't really talk about Islam without talking about the history of the Prophet Muhammad because it really revolves around him. And actually, that's really the Prophet Muhammad. His story was really what inspired me to, you know, look more into Middle Eastern history. Okay. Because, you know, you hear about like Muslim terrorism, Islam, and uh, Sharia law. You hear all these buzzwords. And it's like, oh, but I actually don't know anything about Muslims, you know, even though, which is funny because people used to call me a Muslim all the time, right? Like, because you know so much about it or why? No, because I look like a Muslim, Okay. right? Like I'm, I'm a brown guy with a big nose with a beard and at school and like in my home, Canada, even though I was really Canadian and culturally more Venezuelan, people would call me an Arab and a Muslim, but as an insult, right? Like no... Being an Arab and a Muslim is not a good thing in North America. It's actually a bad thing. It's actually like an insult. They use yeah, it as to an the insult. ignorant. Yeah, absolutely to the ignorant. But it's it's we we really don't appreciate just how acceptable hating Muslims and hating Arabs are. It's like the one people group that is entirely acceptable to hate. Mm. If you think about it, like think about any movie you watch. What movie? Do you think, what movie do you have like an Arab character who is the protagonist who's portrayed well? Other than Aladdin, what m- movie do you have <laughs> Ar- that you have Aladdin. a movie like, which is even then a problematic because it's a very Orientalist, you know, depiction of the Middle East. Um, but other than Aladdin, name me one movie you know of that has an Arab protagonist. I don't I I really can't name a movie but I feel like when you see like maybe more African movies or honestly Malcolm X but he's not Arab okay he's not Arab you're right you're right there's tons of movies about black people 
You say something about black people, people are gonna be like, whoa, 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 what are you saying? You can't say that about black people. You can't say that about Chinese people. What are you, what are you racist? I'm saying okay. But I'm Arab saying like people? African ah. movies that are portraying like the Ara- like African Arabs. Like I feel like they show like a positive light of being Muslim. Like like movies made in Africa. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, yeah. Like <laughs> like I mean like Arabs have their own movies, right? But I'm talking like mainly from like Hollywood Western no, films. I, don't, I can't. I don't know. This right. is a lot of like war and things like that. So. Yeah, they're always the bad guy. They're always or or the taxi driver. Or the immigrant who can't speak English. Not even the comic relief. They're just the people who die and get killed because they're evil and bad. I don't know. This is Think about any video game, man. Like, you know, like in Call of Duty, right? Who are they shooting? I don't play Call of Duty. You never play Call of Duty? <laughs> I never play. <laughs> right? they, they shoot, they shoot Arabs and, and Russians. That's who they, that's who you kill. Mm. Those are the people you want to. They're very acceptable to hate. Like Did Europe, it? Europe straight up cl- tried to close its borders and shift policy, all because they didn't want Arabs and Muslims coming into their country. Mm. England literally left the EU over it. Well, yeah, it's tough. Yeah, but that's that's what happens. That's that's how powerful historical narratives are. So this is what has really fascinated you with uh, Middle Middle Eastern and North African studies is. Yeah, it's it's the lie. It's the lie that I was taught about the world, and most importantly, about people who look like me. Right. Right. It was kind of like an awakening. It's like, you know, because like I'm not Muslim. I don't even associate myself with being Arab, but because my own culture, my own people, associated me with that identity, uh, I became curious about what that identity even was. Right. Right, and then when I when I looked into it, I was like, "Wow, why are why aren't we learning about the second biggest religion in the world that is soon to be the first? Right? Why aren't we learning? If these are the people we're supposed to be killing and and, and hating our enemy, you know, why aren't we learning about them? Mm-hmm. Right? Shouldn't we keep our enemies closer than our friends? Right? Like, if you're gonna go to war with all these people, like, shouldn't you know a little bit about them? You know, especially since they are literally no. like the anti-West. She does not know anything at all. Essentially. Yeah. So, last question to final everything we've been talking about up. Um, what is in your since you talked about identity, national identity, and politics? Like, how would you say Islam plays a part in? creating a national identity for people we spoke about it a little bit with prophet muhammad having like arab tribes come together but in in contemporary times what do you see those connections being um well islam is like being muslim is a national identity in its own right um if you were to go and ask most people in the Middle East or in the Muslim world, what they are, uh, like what they are first and foremost, they will probably say that they are Muslim before they are their own nationality. Mm-hmm. They are Muslim before they are Egyptian. They are Muslim before they are Moroccan. They are Muslim before they are Indonesian. Um, it's really the crux of their identity because they follow, or at least theoretically, right? Because like what's on paper, like is not always 
uh, practiced in reality. But theoretically, they are following every moment of their life, their spiritual, legal, and moral um, framework revolves around believing that the Quran is the word of God. And so that's that's like their main identity, if anything. Like national identity is actually secondary. And that's one of the big problems in the modern Middle East. Because you have identities like Arab nationalism that are trying to unite people on the basis of being Arab. But what does it mean to be Arab? To um, speak Arabic? Yeah, to speak Arabic. But Arabic as a language really has, as a centralized language, as a standardized language, has its origins with Islam. Right? There was Arab, the language Arabic before there was Islam, no? It was several dialects. The Arabs spoke different dialects and had different scripts of what we call like a pre, like, like a, like a pre-Arabic, like a proto-Arabic, like in Petra and, uh, and even in like the Hejaz where uh, Muhammad grew up. But the Arabic that we know today, and classical Arabic in particular, was mainly a construction by Islam, by Muslims. Yeah, and the Arab identity as like, like, really, like, Arab identity in the sense that the Arabs had this collective consciousness about who they were as opposed to the rest of the world and people really starting to call themselves Arabs and associate themselves as being Arabs and like the the um, political ramifications and culture like surrounding what it means to be Arabs really began with Islam. Okay. It's very difficult to disassociate being Arab and Muslim. Does okay. that make sense? Yes. It is. It is. But it, it's, it's just a little convoluted because you do have Arabs who aren't Muslim. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, Arabs who are not Muslim um, are actually the main architects behind modern Arab nationalism. It was really... like There were Muslim scholars involved, but it was mainly Christian scholars um, who pushed for a more secular Arab identity to include Christians, to include Jews, and then potentially to include people who were not religious at all. Um, but again, to be Arab and to revive this history of being, like the, the, the history of being Arab revolves around Islam. When these Christian scholars write about um, re reviving the old Islam, uh, Arab civilization, the Arab empires, uh, the Arab golden age in which Arabic language is the dominant, uh, language of politics, of law, of philosophy and science. Christian Arabs want that to be revived and they, they pushed for that in their literature. They even tried to, um, modernize the Arabic script so they can publish more books and bring this new revival just like they dominated the books back in the old day. But that golden age was under the rule of the Islamic Caliphate. Islam produced that. Mm. In fact, that entire era revolves around an Islamic empire. So how are you supposed to disassociate being Arab and being Muslim is a question that 
I'm trying to tackle in my series that I do try to tackle in my series. Um, but it's also a question that to this day, um, it's still kind of talked about politically. And what we're seeing, especially in the modern times, is that Arab nationalism has, for the most part, kind of failed. Which is why we're seeing this resurgence of Islamism all over the North African Middle Eastern world. Hmm, that's interesting. I wouldn't consider it as failing, but I don't know. Um, so when the Arab Spring happened... And they overthrew the governments of Tunisia and Egypt. The parties they elected were Islamist parties. It's the first time they had democracy in these countries, right? The first time these people are allowed to vote, they vote for an Islamist party. In Egypt, they voted for the Muslim Brotherhood. And then two years later, the military had to uh, overthrow the government in a coup. And now the current leader, al-Sisi of Egypt... He kind of perpetuates that old Arab, secular Arab identity, that old Arab nationalism. But he came into power by force. The people elected an Islamist leader. Uh, Iran was the same way. Iran was once a secular country that promoted Persian nationalism. It was overthrown by an Islamic uh, movement. An Islamic republic was established in which the constitution holds that the Quran as, as a as like the the epitome of of law of the, of the law of the land essentially um same thing happened in iraq when they overthrew saddam hussein islamist organizations propped up everywhere um even in morocco after 2011 when they re re uh, uh redrafted the constitution right and and actually held some of the freest elections in the country ever they elected an islamist party so it's, it's Islamism and Islamic identity is, especially in the modern era, uh, exceptionally potent and more relevant now than ever before because Arab nationalism and more importantly, secularism was enforced by these, by these leaders, by these dictators on the population violently. Iran violently imposed secularism, which was seen as a foreign um, ideology, a foreign infiltration, a foreign penetration into their society. Because if you're a Muslim and you live in a Muslim society, your society revolves around the word of God. So for someone who is not from your society, go in and tell you, no, we're not going to follow the word of God. That is a detriment, not just to your society, but to you as an individual and your identity. Mm. Right? Because yeah. your whole life, you're supposed to follow the word of God. Right. You're immortal. What would you know? You're, I'm, I'm following the word of God right here. And you're trying to defy the laws of God and how God wants us to live our life? Well, now you got a problem. That's so interesting because it's like the exact opposite of America where like religion is completely separated from government and law and national identity so yeah but we're also even seeing in the United States a resurgence of you know religious fundamentalism of trying to put religion and codify religion to impact society right like they just got rid of Roe v. Wade right right um we're seeing a 
a reaction, a conservative movement, and, and, a, and a resurgence back to Christianity, back to tradition, over things like granting women more rights, um, acceptance of LGBTQ people. Christianity doesn't accept that. You're still accepting it in America. It's accepted. Men can be women now. Yeah, men can be women now. But if you're a Christian and you believe that this is the way God intended the body to be, that God would not want such deviance. They see this as deviance, right? And it's a society that's impacting their children, who they want their children to also practice the way of God, the way that we've been following for thousands of years, this myth of tradition, mm-hmm. right? Those practices, those um, codifications of those into law, that's a threat to them. Not just for their society and what they want their society to be, but for them as individual Christians, mm-hmm. right? And we're going to see that in Europe. And we're seeing that right now in the United States, even in Canada to a degree, um, because of a distorted and mythological perception of what tradition even is, right? Because tradition is made up, right? What we think is tradition is entirely made up. And I'll, I'll close that statement with this. Um, in Morocco, right? If you go to a mosque as a non-Muslim woman, they're going to kick you out. Because the rule for them is non-Muslims are not allowed in mosques. And if you ask them, they're like, well, that's our tradition. Non-Muslims are not allowed in mosques. But if you go to any other Muslim country in the world, that's where even Saudi Arabia or Iran, the most strict Islamic countries in the world, non-Muslims are allowed to go into And in fact, they invite you. Non-Muslims are invited to mosques. They want you to see the mosque. They want you to see how Muslims pray. So why in Morocco is this the exception? Because during the French colonial period, it was legally codified that non-Muslims were not allowed to go into mosques and Muslims were not allowed to go into Christian or synagogue places of worship. Mm. They wanted to enforce segregation so they could divide and conquer the colony. And that legal system that was implemented by a Christian Frenchman uh, remained and sticked to become part of the quote-unquote tradition of uh, Moroccan Islam. Masha'Allah. That's not good? <laughs> no, it's not. It's not good, but like that's that's um, that's history. It is what it is. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Sultan Skinny, for, our, for joining us today on the More Podcast. We hope to have you back sometime because you are... A library of knowledge. It's, it's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here and talk to you. Yes, and I encourage my listeners to please go check out his podcast on YouTube. Just type in Sultan Skinny to learn more about the Middle East and all these topics we've been delving into today. <laughs>